Hi there. Happy Thursday. Welcome to another episode of the Tempo Report. When I was younger, I used to discover new music on a thing called a music video channel. Who remembers those? I missed out on MTV, but I'm old enough to remember much music from the early 2000s. I remember sitting in front of the TV either before school watching music video loops or evenings watching a show called Going Coastal. One day in 2003, I came across Hawksley Workman. This was around the time of his album Lover Fighter coming out. I specifically remember the song We Will Still Need a Song. I was captivated by the song's arrangement. I can't explain how or why. Much music was the only place I could listen to the record, but I was still hooked. For this week's episode, I was fortunate enough to chat with Hawksley, and I was super excited because I'd listened to his music for the past 19 years. We chat everything from creativity to starting a Wayne's World-esque variety show and comparing musical improv on stage at a concert to running plays on the court in a basketball game. Hope you enjoy. Could you just start off by telling me like who you are and what is it you do? I am Hoxley Workman. I am a arts and culture and entertainment worker in Canada. Mostly I'm a singer-songwriter who's been touring the world for 23 years, but I've also done quite a lot of theater work, um, film soundtracks, wrote a children's book, wrote a poetry book. Yeah, 23 years of mostly touring and putting out records, but lots of other stuff as well. Has music always been something that you wanted to do yeah i always say that you know there's a jay-z lyric that i like that i'm sure it's not he didn't invent this but idea but it's not the life that i chose but the life that chose me and really the thing about my music career is that i knew by the time i was 10 years old that what i was going to be doing and it for me i was just kind of putting in time part of the reason i ended up you know I kind of left high school. I didn't really finish. And a lot of that was just due to the fact that I, I, my, I had already figured out what my career was going to be. And, um, I just needed to get on with it. And so high school started to feel like it was really, really dragging, um, dragging its feet for somebody who knew kind of the direction they were headed. So, um, it's, it's, I've had people like I've, I've, had it suggested that it was very lucky that you would know. And then it's interesting like, to know what you were going to do from such a young age and have that be sort of an undeniable truth that you just live with every day. Because I think that most people go through their lives kind of 
their young lives wondering about the possibilities. And for me, there, that was just never a part of who I was. And, and, you know, if, if I could be probably, I could take a minute and be, feel nostalgic about what it may have felt like to sit and think, Oh, do I want to be a, I don't know, a veterinarian or, a or, or own a restaurant or something? I don't know. But for me, it was, I had one option and I knew that from a very young age. And then the other thing about having only one option is you only have one option. And I think that in the arts and culture business, a plan B can sometimes be a destructive feature to the dream, if you know what I mean. Like oftentimes I feel like if you know you have something to fall back onto, you will fall back onto it. So that was another thing. When I moved to Toronto as a kid growing up in rural Ontario, um, I never took on a real job. I, I mean, I did, I had one for a short time while I was still trying to figure out if I was actually going to do music, which is another story. But honestly, um, once I had locked into the Toronto scene and I was, you know, you just, I just had to live within my means, which were very, very minute and which meant I had to live in very strange places and put in a few years, uh, you know, being pretty pretty broke or poor however you want to put it and then things started to happen do you consider yourself a creative person oh yeah absolutely like i think that um even my wife sometimes will be doing something like we've been doing a lot of renovations around our house lately and and i'm very hands-on i'm not very i don't have a lot of natural affinity for woodwork and stuff but i have a lot of just generally, you might even call, suggest it's misplaced courage on that front. But, you know, we'll run into a, a problem and I'll be able to sort of go see, well, there's, you know, we could possibly, you know, mitigate this situation by doing it like this or thinking like that or whatever. And she often says like, oh, man, it's a really creative idea. And I definitely know that because what I do for a living is come up with ideas, um, it's just something that is naturalized so i i feel like it's a blessing because in many ways i'm creative in other parts of life the only time that's kind of not fun is when you have to take something for face value if you know what i mean like if somebody says this is the way it has to be done it makes what it is i'm sometimes a natural contrarian because i'm like well you have an idea but i'm in the business of ideas so let me have my idea i don't need, i don't necessarily want to follow your idea it's you know sometimes i'm difficult to be around like that Absolutely, I completely, I completely agree with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, with this pandemic uh, going on right now, what's what's some things you've been doing to, you know, uh, keep yourself sane? I, in the early days, I, like everybody, I think I was just stunned, and I sat around and kind of was mopey for the first couple of months, but then I. Uh, I started to work on this idea, the Hoxley Night in Canada show, which was an online, a live online show that happened. Uh, I think it's seven, we're seven episodes in and I write a pet song and there's a phone in show, part of component to the show and I play music and we tell stories. And so that online show, um, I wanted it to be like a professional looking show. I had a, I had a TV show when I was a kid in my local, uh, on my local cable station. I wanted to do like a 
Wayne's World type public <laughs> access type show from my. <laughs> so I, I bought cameras and camera switcher and lights and really a full small TV studio's worth of production. And we built that show that 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 took a lot of time. You know, I was busy also just getting healthier. So I was doing a lot of exercise. Um, I've been practicing a lot. I downloaded this app called Done, and it helps you try and focus in on creating better habits. Or, or if, if you're looking to create new habits, you know, arguably you're wanting to create constructive habits. Uh, this Done is sort of a way to keep you accountable. And I was on Done for January, February, March. I read a lot. I read a lot, a lot, a lot. I get up really early, and I usually read for at least an hour, if not two. And then I usually go walking, and then. Um, then it's usually nine in the morning by the time that's all over because I usually get up between 4.30 and 5. And uh, I've been practicing the guitar a lot. I, f I stumbled into the guitar and fell in love with it again after like years of being completely ambivalent about guitar. Um, so that's been pretty fun. That's been the most what I've been doing, home renovations. And to be honest with you, I'm, I just feel healthy. I feel healthy in a way. Um, about just being home. I haven't been home this long in 23 years, so it's pretty interesting. Uh, like, it's pretty, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. How did you come up with this idea with um, Hawks Lee Hawks Night in Canada? Well, um, <laughs> obviously it's a fun name because it uh, kind of harkens to our, our, our everybody's favorite hockey show. I would say... I've had the Hoxie Night in Canada as a variety show idea in my back pocket for quite a long time. I'll even admit I pitched it to the CBC and they turned it down. But the, this version of Hoxie Night in Canada was a way for me to figure out online streaming, to learn a lot of new stuff. Because for a long time, I was a proud Luddite and loved the fact that I was, you know, computer illiterate. And then... When the 21st century kind of rolled around, it was like this whole computer illiteracy, illiteracy thing is like no longer cute. And it's like actually impeding your ability to move with, you know, the tempo of the times. And so I've spent a lot of in the, a lot of time in the last, I feel, six years just learning technology and not being afraid of it and really... I read a, an interesting book by David Lynch, which is more or less a book about um, transcendental meditation. But he talks a lot about embracing new technologies for the, the good things that are wrapped up in a new technology. Because there's lots of great things in old technologies that are lost when we, we, when we transform. But So I've been just enjoying learning video production and learning camera and lights and just generally putting some sort of faith, I guess, in the internet too, that, that, that we can connect authentically. I mean, we're this, they're just, these are just, you know, temporary stop along the way until we're doing live shows again. So this is, this is kind of the, 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 the impetus for wanting to, 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 to do that show. How do you feel about live stream, live streaming do you do you do you find that um, it helps with um, fan connection? Um, I feel like there's no choice at the moment for me. I'm a live music person, like that's what I do. So I um, 
I don't think anybody is like, wow, this is like, if live music never came back, I'd be okay because this live streaming is totally cool. I, I think that everybody's like, ah, it's okay. It's better than nothing. I think um, I, when when COVID goes away or when we figure out COVID and we're back playing shows, I will still do my Hoxie Night in Canada show from time to time because it's a real joy and it's totally hilarious. And, um, and yeah, it, I really get a kick out of it. Um, and it's different than a live show and it and it's a special kind of thing and it's it's a lot of work to put it together and I like that kind of stuff. But um man, I, I really think that I feel like people were sick of live streaming by uh, I don't know. Like it feels like by the end of this past summer, I think everybody was well over it, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. But like you said, like um it's a it's a good substitute for Live music. I mean, I definitely want to be, you know, uh, definitely want to be at an in-person show. Yeah, There's, totally. You can't um, replace, you know, a feeling like that. There's nothing like um, playing off like a crowd and um, yeah, just like dancing to the beat of anything. I guess. Yeah. Um, to- totally. Before COVID, obviously there was touring. Um, do you have like any stories from the road that you uh, wouldn't mind sharing with me? Well, what kind of stuff do you want to hear? Like uh, the good, the bad, or the ugly, or some some. Um, of well, well, like whatever your whatever my heart desires. Yeah, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. I don't okay. <laughs> You're being kind. You're being kind, Spencer. Well, I mean, um, you know, my road life now is pretty, uh, pretty sedate. Um, even back when I was, you know, pre-COVID and was um, loving touring as a sober person, I must admit, um, it makes being on the road pretty easy because you're not, you know, ever suffering the pain of a hangover. And just generally speaking, the road is a place that drains energy naturally. That's its natural sort of, that's the natural occurring function. So if you're helping by boozing all the time, which I was for years, you just kind of, you start to fade. So it was nice to feel robust and sturdy on the road. I liked that. And um, I was really quite enjoying it. And, uh, but, you know, I go back into the party years and the years, especially when I was young and, there was a, an, a lot of energy around me for a few years where I was sort of being, I was sort of being nurtured to be the next big thing for uh, at least uh, in Canada and France and England too, to some degree. And, uh, you know, those are crazy times because even the music business was more robust back then. It, it resembled more of its original self and there was a lot of money and there was, I never really got into drugs, so I was one of just kind of drank a lot of wine, and I was kind of famous in France, and so we were always touring in places where there was kind of extraordinary things happening. The French also like treat people who are famous; they they are like they they get really they really take that stuff seriously. I guess we all do, but it just felt like in France, like for a while there, um, being kind of famous there was very bizarre, and so. You know, there's there was like movie stars and all that kind of weird stuff that happens when all of a sudden when there's 
you're on TV. And so that kind of stuff was happening back on the road. Um, the funny thing about the road is that, of course, and, you know, this is no surprise because this story has been told over and over and over again. But it's still amazing in a way that some parts of the road can be so glamorous and then other parts of the road can be so phenomenally unglamorous. And um, the unglamorous stuff doesn't go away, I think, until you become Elton John. I've got this sort of theory <laughs> that, like, like, you have to reach an extremely high, high, super high, phenomenally high level in your career for your touring life to be to be very comfortable and like to be comfortable comfortable like when i was a kid i would hear stories like oh you know barbara streisand needs part of her contract if she does a show is that the backstage has to be decorated exactly like her house isn't that ridiculous oh my god it's so crazy and then i remember like you know within the context of a normal life that looks absolutely nuts but in, in the context of somebody who tours for a living and plays shows for a living and like has to operate at a high level, always in a place that you're not comfortable. It's like, wow, if I could get the backstage to look like my living room, I'd probably do it. You know, I look, I follow, um, this drummer named Josh Freeze from California, who's Sting's drummer now, but he played with Nine Inch Nails. He plays with Devo. He's kind of one of the, the hot go-to guys for studio and live. And so he's been touring with Sting for the last several years. And man, that guy spends a lot of time on private jets and in the nicest hotels in the world. And again, I think once you get up into that level where the, the business side of your thing is so, so, so huge, I think then you can probably invite untold comfort into touring. But, you know, a lot about touring feels like we I always can sort of liken it to I mean, I've never been to war, but it feels like war to me because you're like this mini outfit with your band and your however big your crew is, a road manager and a front of house person. And, you know, however big you maybe you're carrying a light person or whatever. And so let's say you're like. I think I've at a minimum will travel with four and, and but at a maximum I've pr probably travel with 14 or 15 people. And, um, anyway, uh, I don't even remember what I was saying about all these people. What, what are we doing out here on the road? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, all these people, you know, you're sort of suffering through this stuff together and there's, there's a sense that like, it's you against the world, you know, you're pulling into Calgary one night and then you're pulling into Kamloops the next. And it's, you know, it's not that it's adversarial, that relationship between you and the audience or you and the town. But there is this feeling like, you know, those those people contained within that touring unit are sort of in, in a constant struggle against time, uh, health, um, weather. Uh, and, and it's just it does feel a little adversarial. And so. Yeah, it's it's a fun it's a fun existence, but that's the fun thing about the road. That's why it's so sweet, the bittersweet element. When you get home and you survived it all, and you, if you even got a, made a little money, and you're counting that up, and you're remembering all of the extraordinary times, like that's the thing about the road. It's a, it's a, it's a windfall of memories. And you know, I'm lucky because the guys in my band who have been with me since day one, almost all of them. My drummer, I think, is about 18 years now, but or 15 years maybe, but my, my bass player and my piano player have been with me for 23 years. And like, I, we've been all over the world together with those guys. They've seen me at my best and absolute worst. And, and I, the, the friendships I have within my band and the, the places that, that I've gone and done and the, the, you know, some of the, all of the suffering of that 
you know, lack of health and lack of sleep and the, all that stuff I was telling you. But all, I did all of that with a, with a family of people who've been there, most of them, like I said, from the beginning. And so that's kind of an interesting feeling to go through all of that bizarre adversity. And it's not real life adversity. It's not it's not life struggles in the kind of ways that people really struggle. It's that within the context of a pretty interesting life as a musician, it does require you to be resilient for lack of sleep, resilient for all kinds of things that, you know, you could otherwise remedy if you were only just at home in your own house, you know? Yeah, I I can totally see where you're coming from. It looks like you've created quite the, like, touring family for yourself. Yeah, totally. And I'm really lucky. Um, how does audiences in North America compare to audiences in, uh, like Europe? Yeah. You know, I would even say that Canadian audiences can be very different from province to province. Um, audiences reflect, you know, the people who live in those towns and, um, I think about Canada, you know, as a collection of, I don't know, these almost like city states, there's enough personality difference between town to town where they're far enough apart that even within Canada, there's differences in audiences. You know, Americans, I think are a little bit wilder. I feel like, you know, when I play in England, the, the British crowds are, can be kind of loud and boisterous. Uh, Australian crowds are a little like that too. Those sort of brasher sort of drinking cultures, you can walk into a room that has an adversarial energy and it's just going to be one or two guys who've had a couple drinks too much and maybe weren't even there because they're a fan. Maybe they were brought there by a friend, but they're going to be, you know, maybe they're going to be grinding you a little on stage. Hey, mate, you know, that can happen in England. That can happen in Australia. That can't, that, that happens in Canada, but we're mostly polite. I don't play the U S enough to know if that happens, but when you get into mainland Europe, when you get into France and Germany and Holland and these places, like these are fiercely polite audiences. These are people who like look at art and culture as like a European kind of invention that, you know, there's a, there's the maintenance of a, of a, of a, uh, of, of protocols and and certain respect goes into the admiration of an artist and what an artist does and and I just so you when you're in Europe it's very that's why I think a lot of artists in general but North American artists love touring in mainland Europe because everywhere you go even if they don't know who you are they're going to sit and really listen. They're like, um, they're just raised in that in that cultural vein, and so that's an that's an amazing thing about touring in Europe. I've only played Japan one time, and it was a very similar energy where there was a very respectful attention paid. And um, I will say that when you're playing in places, rowdy bars in Australia and and, and England and Ireland. Like, and Scotland, I, I was just in Glasgow not that long before the pandemic. Uh, and it's, you know, you have to battle those audiences sometimes, but that keeps you really resilient as a performer. I've watched performers that haven't had to work in a long time. Like, like again, when, when you're preaching to the choir, when you're a sting or something like that, like, I'm sure he could probably command an audience in a, in a bar as well. But there's definitely a callus you build up 
when you punch into enough like rowdy audiences over the years, it, it, it turns you into a much, much stronger performer. When you're performing night after night, how do you stay fresh? That's a such a great question, Spencer. The answer is sometimes it's man, it's huge what you just asked. Cause like, I'm trying to like be more gentle on myself when I'm out on the road now because feeling fresh is like a big part of like the excitement about performing. And um, I've seen lots of artists who do the same show every night and good on them. Honestly, if you can do that, I get it. I get what the road is like. It, you turn it into a rhythm. It's, you're going to work. You got your lunch pail. Perfect. But for me, I need to like have that communion with the angels in a way that like is undeniable. <clears throat> and I don't get it every night, but I get it most nights. And while I like my set lists to be the same on the road, I like to know where my set is. I like to off-road a little with stage banter. I think some nights, you know, I I want people to I want that to be the risky part of the night. I want it to be theatrical and weird. Um I think that I've never once asked my band, oh, that's, maybe I'm lying, maybe once or twice I have, but for the most part, in 23 years with my band, I've never said, hey, uh, play the part like I played it on the record. On stage, everybody is playing the parts they want. Um, if you've ever seen me play, if you're a fan who has any of my records, like you know that it's almost never happening that my live show sounds like the album, which for some people that love the live show to sound like the album, they would hate my shit. Cause it's like, Oh my God, this guy, like I take too many liberties, but that's the biggest way that I keep the band and I interested as we move along on tour is really just like, is to try and keep the music as free as possible. As long as I can deliver like the verses and choruses in order and stuff, like we should be able to stretch out within the, context of the music and that feels like a you know it's an indulgence but it's also a way to kind of stay into things i had a friend who is an absolutely ridiculous phenomenal guitar player in arguably one of the greatest in the world and he uh got hired to tour with somebody who had about for about 10 years was very 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 famous and was kind of a, a jazz person at first but who became very very famous and then all of a sudden in in the fame in, in in the context of this fame this person needed to play the same show every night after night because that's when you when you're a commercial entity at that high level all of a sudden it's like you're not you can't mess around if you're playing to 10,000 people a night you have to give them an absolute guaranteed show which means you got to do it note for note the same every night. So for this person, they hired my guitar playing friend because he's a total loose cannon on stage and does, never plays anything the same twice. And he was permitted to be himself to entertain the main, the main singer because they just needed to have some kind of excitement occurring within the drudgery of playing a sort of high value, high ticket value type concert tour where, you know, your banter is the same every night. It's basically a, a choreographed show oftentimes at those levels. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just, just going on here, buddy. No, it's fine. It's like, this is good stuff. Okay, good. <laughs> I guess it's all about like, you know, different people's interpretations. 
of the music when it comes to playing live. Like when you're talking about like not needing to sound like exactly like the record. Yeah. Um, would you say that playing live, it's sometimes about the band's interpretation? Yeah, absolutely. When I had, had the money to be able to hire musicians, I hired my favorite musicians in Toronto. And so those guys still, they're still brilliant musicians. And I still get a kick out of hearing those, those guys play every night. And so um, as a band leader, there are those band leaders that want the record represented note for note. And then there's a guy like me who is more really interested in hearing the creative energy in the, in the people that I play with and letting them, letting my music be a platform that they can kind of, they can reach out. We're not doing space age jazz up, up there by any stretch, but we're, we're definitely, there's liberties being taken and I encourage it because, you know, there's an improvisational element to it. I sometimes think music, the music business is always asking itself, you know, how can we attract, you know, more customers basically you know, in the 70s, music was the number one entertainment product in the world. And then now, you know, music is very, very secondary to people's lives. They have other, you know, other entertainment sources that are more important. And I often look at sports and go like, look at how many people love sports. Well, the thing about sports is it's an improvised event. And I look at music getting more and more rigidly programmed and rigidly fixed and turning into something that is highly predictable. And is that in any way reflective of what may be happening with music becoming a secondary um, entertainment element in people's lives? Because really the improvisational element is disappearing and it's the improvisational element in entertainment that is what keeps people really excited, you know, and I love watching sports because it's a hundred percent improvised event. Watching basketball is beautiful because even though they're running plays and there is certain amount of planning behind the scenes, that's like the same exact thing as my band playing my songs on stage. There's a framework, but it is totally liquid and chaotic. Once they hit the, once they hit hit the basketball court and how exciting and how extraordinary is that that we get to witness that glorious improvisation and i really think music needs more more of that more of that live and more of that free feeling to kind of reconnect with what it is that makes music special for people absolutely i've never like i've never heard like music compared to sports like that but the more the more i think about it that actually makes sense. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's good, Spencer. I think about this stuff a lot. I think about it too much, it, to the point where it makes me feel crazy, but I am deeply concerned about music. I'm deeply concerned about culture and arts, and I, I understand its importance, but I also understand that it's ephemeral and that there are times when arts and culture are not important at all. and so I, I, I kind of watch how the culture operates and fluctuates and undulates under different pressures. And, you know, I watch so much Netflix now, like I think many people, like many people, I mean, how am I any different from the rest of the culture at the moment? Like television is, you know, um, episodic television it must be one of the, the biggest, you know, 
arts and culture events of our current time that doesn't even touch video games. You know, video games are the biggest entertainment source that I that I, I still think that must be the the statistic and and how wonder, how crazy and wonderful is that? I mean, I have are you into gaming at all? Like I got no relationship to this community. Do you? I have a PS4 and I like I play games, but like I don't like I'm not like an online gamer. I'm not like a right. serious gamer. It's just right. It, it's just another thing that I picked up, you know, during this pandemic, you yeah. know, and it's like watching, you know, watching TV or uh, watching Netflix, you know, it's just another thing to pass the time, I guess. Yeah. I I'll, I will confess that I did buy um, this box that like it's just a that looks like an old Atari box. You probably know what this is, and they sell it at Best Buy or whatever, and it's a hundred and five dollars, hundred and five or hundred and ten dollars or something, and it's got like two hundred vintage video games in there, and like I don't know, I started to have a hankering to play video games um, for a very short spell through this summer, and so. Um, and I really wanted Pac-Man, but Pac-Man, <laughs> so I buy this thing, Pac-Man is not included. But I was got into Frogger, got very into Frogger, and uh, um, and got into Asteroids in a big way, and got into um, Space Invaders in a big way. And th- those were the three big games that I played. We had a, um, there were video game, uh, video game, like arcade games at the laundromat where my parents did the laundry when I was a kid. I've always been into... Uh, video games ever since I was a teenager, but when I like reintroduced myself to to video games, vintage video games like you know like Space Invaders was my to go to. I guess. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. How do you come up with song lyrics? Well, that's good. I mean, I'm always keeping my ear open for interesting sounding phrases or word couplets or rhymes or i'm a real word nerd and i keep on guard always i have a list on my phone here of stuff that's just like starting points some chorus ideas some song title ideas and i'm one of those people that writes lyrics as i'm writing the song so they inform you know the the mood of the chords or the movement or the rhythm of the chords it informs the mood of the lyric and vice versa so i don't i'm not a very good narrative songwriter i think i tell i i think i'm good at putting images together and that's generally how i do it and the lyric thing is kind of a mystery because like humans just want to make music naturally because we're wired to make music but the lyric thing like language is a sort of a secondary communicative feature. I think we were playing music probably a long time before we were speaking, you know, uh, to each other. So so the lyric is kind of this funny, like, secondary add-on to this, like, ancient, like, cellular thing. And it is, I it definitely, it's considered differently. How did you come up with, like, the title for your latest album less rage more tears was a funny joke for me anyways my own inside joke that i watched my dad who was had a lot of rage in him when he was younger when he was a younger dad and 
and that rage just one day kind of went away and my dad started to just cry at everything. And I think, you know, your, your hormones change and it changes the person you are and, you know, your testosterone backs off and all of a sudden you're less aggressive and, you know, different things matter. You feel the, you know, the reality of your mortality, whatever it all comes together to create a softer person. And I'm 46 now and I'm, you know, I'm somebody who had a lot of aggressive, like anger and, uh, that kind of, uh, momentum inside me. And I'm starting to cry a lot more too now. Like I can feel those changes in my hormones and, and just how you become a different person. And, uh, yeah, so it's just an old, it's, I've been sort of like, you know, it's just a kind of a joke about being an old man, really. Interesting. You re- you recorded this album at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Well, I I released it at the beginning of the pandemic, but quite honestly, I it had been recorded, I'll bet you it had been recorded about a year before the pandemic. Oh, so you didn't have to like worry about like, you know, recording remotely or anything. No, no, I was, I was honestly, we were still in a freewheeling pre-COVID life. No, uh, no hindrances at all. How do you find like, um, releasing music in a pandemic versus like before? The biggest way we have to promote a new record is to be on the road because, you know, there's no such thing as music videos or music channels anymore. And the the universe within commercial radio is very competitive. So without being able to get on the road and go and like have people see you play these new songs and have you kind of like create a situation where they can maybe fall in love with a new song, like without that, it is tough to, to, to promote a record. And I'd say that like, for anybody that has been releasing records in the pandemic, they're all feeling probably the same, which is, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> this is what a terrible loss, what a terrible situation this is, that all this work goes into this record. And it is a lot of work. And and also knowing that, like, that there won't be any money likely made on that record anymore either. So that you go into it knowing you're making a piece of art and, it's fundamentally from a business perspective, a loss leader. And then all of a sudden it doesn't really have a chance to do its job. And oh man, for me, it was still fine. Like I, I, I release records all the time. I put out so much music. It doesn't really like the, I, the record did exactly what I wanted it to. I did really well on the CBC. It got a bit of commercial airplay and surprising places, including Indy 88 in Toronto, which was great. And um, had a cool couple singles, worked with this cool producer in France. I mean, I recorded the whole record in Montreal. It's going to be nostalgic for me because um, I moved from Montreal last year. And so it, it, that record will remind me of a, that sort of time in my life. So, you know, it, it is what it is for me. But I, I had other friends who 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 had who were releasing records that were should have been a big deal and just didn't probably get the chance to be because of the pandemic. Well, you know, it, it seems like it seems like, you know, a lot of people are making the making the best of a terrible situation. Yeah. I I think it's true. Um so 
What I found with this new record more experimental than yeah. your previous stuff. Well, I think it's definitely more experimental than my last. Yeah, definitely in the last while, I would say. But I think it's it's kind of the direction I think I'm probably going to go hybrid of like, you know, acoustic instruments and synthesizers, uh, probably a lot more electric guitar and this blend of these, these 80s instincts with sort of this impossibly hard to shake folk instinct that I have. So one last question and then I'll let you go. Um, who are your like musical influences? It's funny, I get more and more reflective of that as I get older. I spent, I think, my early 20s trying to like deny that I had any musical influences, which of course is ridiculous. Um, but as I got older, like you start to understand that you can develop and be your own person and have influences, and that's what your influences are. And for me, I mean, I, I list them in my mind so often. I mean, it sort of starts with eight tracks of the Beatles probably when I was a kid, very, 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 very young, and then... Uh, Michael Jackson and Prince and the, the the early 1980s pop music that I was experiencing at the time it was happening. Van Halen, uh, Paul Simon puts out Graceland. Then I'm starting to buy my own records, uh, 12, 13 years old, and I'm listening to Led Zeppelin and a lot of 70s rock. And then I get caught in this drum thing and I start and I go off on a total tangent and I'm listening to a lot of Chick Corea and John Schofield. Um, and at the time, I'm also feeling like a moody teenager. And I'm being heavily influenced by the Smiths uh, and Thomas Dolby and Laurie Anderson. But I'm also falling in love with songwriting and I'm falling in love with songwriters. So, you know, I'm being very influenced by Bruce Coburn and uh, uh, to some lesser extent, Leonard Cohen Joni Mitchell, um, but all the while maintaining this sort of jazz fusion thing on the side. And those are it. And to this day, I'm, I'll, I put Bruce Coburn at the top, uh, Chick Corea, uh, rest in peace. I used to put him in there. He was just so fundamental for me as a teenager. Um, Led Zeppelin is just massive. Uh, John Bonham, the drummer, like I... It, Led Zeppelin was just is to me is this is was the university that I went to and and yeah and so those those continue to be the big ones for me. Awesome. Um, I completely forgot that um, I completely forgot that you played drums, <laughs> predominantly with uh, Mounties, right? Yeah, yeah. But drums was my first instrument, so yeah, it's still my heart and soul is still on the drums. If people uh, are just discovering you through this podcast episode, um, where's the best place to find you online? Uh, HoxleyWorkman.com, at HoxleyWorkman on Twitter, at HoxleyWorkman on Instagram, at HoxleyWorkman on TikTok. Uh, whatever you do on Facebook, I don't know anything about Facebook. I'm on there too. I, I got the Hoxley Workman uh, website early before anybody else could get it. Well, awesome, man. It was like, it was really great to get a chance to chat with you. And I hope you're uh, staying safe and whatever, whatever you do and keeping busy and sane. And hopefully we'll catch you down the road. Okay, Spencer, I appreciate the chat. Thank you. And I wish you all of those things as well. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Cheers, man. Bye-bye.
Bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hoxley Workman. For more information on all things Hoxley, go to HoxleyWorkman.com. And if you liked this episode, go to DJSpencer.ca slash podcast to check out more episodes. Thanks to Christina Fernandez from Listen Harder and Jennifer Cavanaugh from Isadora Media for helping make this conversation happen. Also, thanks to Anna Baudry Photographic Design for helping with the editing. And now, to round out this episode, here's Hoxley with his latest single, Tahiti Treat. Hope you enjoy and have a fantastic day, my friends.
idea of an 